go and figure out what to do. Uh, so we're back in Second Samuel. I, I noticed I, my notes, I have the wrong uh, passage on the top, so right away you can go ahead and fix that and change it to Second Samuel 12. Well, you may have caught it, but nobody brought it to my attention. I caught it myself, so I think I get the candy bar. So I am going to grab my own candy bar here because I noticed it myself. So there's my candy bar. Now, if you would have pointed it out and caught my attention before I caught it myself, I might have, no, I don't know. So anyway, so so Second Samuel 12 is where we're at. Um, we're continuing in the story. Second Samuel 11, of course, is, again, if I were to say, tell me what, if I were to go to that general people, I know we've studied a lot about David now, so you probably have much more you could tell me about David, but the, the general population about, tell me stories about David, um, probably number one that would come up is David and Goliath, right? The second one is probably David and Bathsheba, is probably the second most well-known thing about David, and that was Second Samuel 11, uh, the sin with Bathsheba. And, of course, if you remember back to that, we understand that we talked about David going up to the rooftop, seeing Bathsheba, and desiring her, and so he brings her into the palace, has relations with her, and uh, she becomes pregnant. And so instead of uh, dealing with the sin in a proper way, he decides to, first of all, try to trick Bathsheba's husband into... Uh, having sexual relations with his wife to cover up his sin, and when that doesn't work, he decides to murder him by sending him to into battle and then uh, making it so that he dies in battle by altering their strategy to lose so that he will die. And that's where we end last time, is that this had just happened. And so now we're going to see that God steps in and decides to deal with David at this point and... I call this Nathan Confronts David. And again, we talked about it's not you, Nathan. And it's not you, Nathan. Although I think either of you would do a good job. So I'm not criticizing that. So, um, so we're going to look at that this morning. But, but that's, before we start, let's go ahead and pray. Josiah, would you open us in prayer, please? Amen. So let's dive right in here. Second Samuel chapter twelve, starting in verse one. Miriam. So point number one here, Nathan tells, uh, and I debated two words in here. The one I came up with was story, but talking with Gabriel this morning, I decided that if you want to use my other word that I was going to use. 
if you like that one better, you can put either one in there. Because I think parable fits. Um, it tells a story or a parable to David. He tells a story about two men, a rich man and a poor man. And he's, the rich man, he was exceedingly rich. He had exceedingly many flocks and herds. Now, again, this, um, he's speaking in David's language. Because remember, what was David before he was king? He was a shepherd. He would understand this, right? He's speaking right in David's wheelhouse. So he, he's talking right to what David knows. And the poor man, he has one ewe lamb. And I, I call this a family pet. Now, the reason I bring this up is because nowadays... You know, you go around and you see people with T-shirts on saying, you know, they're, they're a, a dog mommy or something like that. And we know that's not true because you didn't give birth to that dog, so you're not the dog mommy, right? <laughs> it's ridiculous stuff. But that's how people treat their pets nowadays. You know, it's, it's their kids. This would have been unusual at this time to, to treat an animal like this. The animals were animals. They were utilitarian. They were food. They were wool for their clothes. You didn't treat an animal like this. This was an unusual thing. But this poor man, this is how he treated his animal. Uh, He fed the animal himself. The animal grew up with his children. The animal ate of his food, drank from his cup. This is is an unusual circumstance. The, The shepherds wouldn't have done this with their sheep. But this man did this with this animal. This animal is like a daughter to him. This is, this is not the usual circumstance for how someone would have treated their sheep. In fact, Nathan's making a point that this animal is very special to this man. He treated this animal much better than what normally would have been treated by the animal, and certainly better than the rich man treated his flocks. In fact, the rich man probably didn't spend any time with his flocks. The rich man you know, had shepherds with his flocks in the story. Obviously, it doesn't connect perfectly, but David would have understood this. You know, David's flocks now, probably he had shepherds over his flocks, hired shepherds. You know, there, there's a difference here the way the, the poor man saw his sheep. He had, this has a very, very special relationship with his one sheep that he had. So what happens? The rich man has a feast. That's fine. The rich man can have a feast. He has the right to do that. He has a traveler come. So far, so good. But the rich man doesn't take an animal from his own flock. He has plenty of sheep to do this. He could take any one of his sheep and not miss any of his sheep. Instead, he takes the poor man's sheep, and he kills it for the meal that he's having at his feast. The poor man's sheep, the one that he treasured, the one that was precious to him, the only one he had, the one that he treated like a daughter. So this is the story. A very compelling story here, as we'll see in just a second. And Nathan tells a story, this parable to David. Now David reacts to it. The Second Samuel, chapter twelve, verses five and six. Who would like to read? Jana, go ahead. So David reacts in anger. Now I'm going to say that this isn't an improper reaction on David's part. David is angry at the rich man. And so it says here his anger was greatly aroused against the man. 
And I think David's actually having a proper response to what he hears in the story here. So David's decree, he shall, sure, he shall die. Now, I, I want to bring up something here because something was pointed out to me. And after doing some research, I realized that something I said last time we taught was a little wrong. Um, I mentioned that what David should have done after he sinned with Bathsheba and after, uh, after this happened is that he should have confessed his sin and he should have made restitution and there were things that he should have done to make things right because the law says that there's things that you could do to make it right. Well, the law doesn't say that there's things to make it right. The law says if you're caught in this, uh, adultery with a man's wife that you're to be put to death. So there's actually not a whole lot David can do to make things right with Uriah. Now, I will say that that doesn't change the fact that David still should have confessed his sin. And I'm going to tell why in a little bit. I'm going to hold off the reasons why. Um, but David's decree here is that he, this man should die. And David's actually unknowingly giving the right decree, not only for the man in the story, but he's going to give the right decree for what should happen to him because of what he did. And, and twofold, as we'll, let's look at these passages here. Leviticus 20.10 uh, and I got those passages just in that box below there. But in Leviticus 20.10, it says, The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And so the penalty for what David did for committing adultery with Bathsheba was death. And so he's making a decree that the man in the story should be put to death, but he's really making a decree upon what he did that he should be put to death. Now, interestingly enough, and I'm going to bring this up as kind of a side note, uh, and this is something that I read in my Bible reading. As a family, we're going through the New Testament together, and we've just gone through the Gospels together. Um, I just finished up John chapter 21 this morning. Um, so we're, just, we're through them all. But there's a story about the, the woman caught in adultery. Remember this? Um, the Pharisees bring this woman who's caught in adultery, and they said to Jesus, the law says that if someone's caught in adultery, they're to be put to death, so they're ready to stone her. Remember, they're asking Jesus what they should do. And they're, they're quoting the law. Well, here, there's a problem with this. The woman's caught in adultery, and the law says she's to be put to death, but who else is supposed to be put to death? Man. If she's caught in adultery and they just brought the woman, where's the man? The, the Jews... The Jews are missing, the Pharisees are missing something here. When they, they're, they're, they're trying to catch Jesus here, but they're, they're missing something because if they caught her, they're missing somebody, right? They only brought the woman. Um, so interesting in the story, think, you think about that. Anyway, that's my kind of side note because I thought about that. Because it says the adulterer and the adulteress are supposed to be put to death, and they only brought the adulteress in that situation. So think about that. Anyway, um, so then Leviticus 24, a couple chapters later in Leviticus, verse 17, it says, whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death. So not only did David commit adultery with another man's wife, but then he went and killed the man. So twofold, David's penalty for his sins should be twofold, he should be sentenced to death. So as David makes this decree that the man in the story should be put to death, he's actually condemning himself twice. Because he's giving himself the right judgment without knowing that this story is actually going to be about him. So David makes this decree that he shall die. Then he makes another decree that not only that the guy should die, but he shall restore fourfold to the lamb. Well, this is he should restore fourfold to the lamb. Well, this is going to be very difficult because the guy who's supposed to restore fourfold, he already killed. So, um, 
And, and he gives two reasons why he should do this. Because of what he did, because of the sin itself, and because he had no pity. So David recognizes that the rich man is lacking pity here. He's lacking compassion on the poor man. So David sees through this story what the problem is, and it's, it's going to translate very well to David that the story helps him to reflect when Nathan brings its, brings its point to David in just a second, that David's going to recognize this and understand what God's trying to show him. So David reacts in anger to the story. Now, Nathan's going to bring the point home here. Uh, verses 7 through 12, who wants to read? Matthew, go ahead. So Nathan delivers God's judgment to David. You know, when I was younger, I always had trouble remembering that there's no E in judgment. I always thought, you know, why would you take the E out? English is such a strange language. But I guess it would be judgment or something like that. I don't know. English was such a hard language to figure out. A lot of... A lot of non-English speaking people have such trouble with English because the rules, there's rules and then you say, except for when the rules don't work, which is half the time, and then you got to do it other ways. I'm thankful I got English as the first language because that way I just, anyway, never mind. It's not important. So Nathan delivers God's judgment to David. David's decree, you are the man. You know, to me, this, this is... A, you know, Nathan comes off as very bold here. You are the man. I, I think this just had to take a lot of courage for him to just come out there and just, just say this. I mean, you're going to the king of Israel. The only experience you have as a king before David is Saul. Imagine going to Saul and saying, you're the man. Saul probably would have thrown a spear at you or something, right? I mean, or, yeah, or, he would have chased you around for about 20 years trying to kill you after this. So, so. I, I know Nathan has a relationship with David. David's a different type of character. So, I, I mean, I, it, you know, Nathan's probably going, I'm pretty sure David's not going to try to kill me at this point. But, you know, he just killed Uriah. You know, he just did all these evil things. There has to be some uncertainty in here. So for him to just come out and say, you are the man like this, I, I think it takes a lot of courage and a lot of trust in God to do this. So um, I, I applaud Nathan's boldness and his trust in God to just come out and say, you are the man at this point. I think it's, it shows his, his faith in what God wants him to do when God tells him, you just go and do this. And Nathan's like, okay, I, I will. I, I'm trusting you here. This, the, you know, David, David could kill me here, but this is what you want me to do, God. I'm going to do it. 
Um, then he goes on, and you know, he doesn't just go right into the judgment. First, he reflects on what God's done for David. And it's interesting. He points out, David, you've done all this, but think about what God's done for you first. You know, God's made you king, first of all. Remember, you, you were the shepherd. You were the eighth son of Jesse. You were the one that, when God was looking for the new king, you didn't even get invited to the ceremony at first. You know, your seven brothers came, and you were still out with the sheep, and we had to go and get you. You know, you were the afterthought. You were the, not only, you know, would you not thought of this family, but they didn't even think of you as the son to come and, and, and be here for the sacrifice so that we could anoint you king. You were still out in the field. But God chose you and made you the king. God delivered you from Saul. You were being chased around by Saul. You shouldn't have survived for those 20 years that, that Saul chased you around the wilderness. Um, God gave you all of Saul's possession. He gave you your master's house. You, you rule over Israel in place of Saul. Here it says he gave Saul your master's wives. Now, he didn't actually give, Saul, uh, give David Saul's wives. You know, he has his own wives. But it, this is the idea that God gave David everything out of Saul. Just as Saul had his wives, David has his wives in his place. God gave David rule over Israel and over Judah. And, and God would have even given him more if that wasn't enough. If David would have just asked and said, I don't, I don't have enough, God. God would have given him more. If David felt he was lacking something, God would have given it to him. But then God goes into David's trespass. And the first thing he says, he's, he despised the commandment of the Lord. Um, and this, this brought to memory this passage in Numbers. It says, But the person who does anything presumptuously, whether he is native-born or a stranger, one that brings reproach on the Lord, he shall be cut off from among his people, because he has despised the word of the Lord. He has broken his commandment. That person and neighbor shall neighbor, and he shall lie with the wives. Oh, I lost. Uh, sorry, I got my pages mixed up. I was like, that doesn't make any sense. Um, he shall be completely cut off. His guilt shall be upon him. Um, and just that idea that despising the word of the Lord, despising the Lord there, that, that's an awful thing to bring a charge against somebody, especially the king of Israel. And that's the first thing that he says there. You despised the commandment of the Lord. And David, of all the people, the, the, the king of Israel should know better than to do that. And then, he, uh, how have you done that? You've killed Uriah. That's the first thing that he says. You've killed Uriah. So even, you know, I think, you know, the sin against Bathsheba was bad. And they're all, all bad. All sin's bad. I'm not going to say that none of it's bad because it's all bad. But, you know, he escalated his sin with Bathsheba by eventually killing Uriah. And that's kind of the over the top. To cover once and to cover once. And finally, he killed Uriah. And that's, that's the first one that God brings up. You killed Uriah. And then also you made Uriah's wife your wife. And then uh, God pronounces his judgment. What am I going to do? Well, first of all, the sword's not going to depart from your house. Remember, God's blessing to David was, I'm, I'm going to give you peace. I'm going to give you rest in the land. And now, because of what you've done, God's taken that away from your house. Your sword will not depart from your house. God's going to raise up an enemy to David from his own house. He's going to have peace over the Philistines, peace over the Moabites, peace over the Amorites, peace over all these people. But now the enemy is going to come from his own house, his own family. And then God's going to give David's wives to his neighbor to commit adultery with them. And not only is he going to do that, but it's going to be done in public. Everybody's going to know about it. 
You know, David did this thing in secret, but God's going to make this thing known to everybody. It's going to be done in public. So this is what God's judgment is going to be to David. And we're going to see in the next few weeks as we study this out that God's going to make this happen. And it's going to bring his judgment upon David because of his sin. And we're going to talk a little bit about sin's consequences as we look at our takeaways this morning. So so God brings his judgment upon David. Let's look at David's response. Second Samuel twelve, thirteen through fifteen. Who would like to read? Jonathan, go ahead. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child who is also born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David. So number four here, I say uh, David repents, but faces additional consequences. I think those are my words. So David's response is, I have sinned against the Lord. Very simple statement, but very profound there. I have sinned against the Lord. A, A simple confession to God, I have sinned against the Lord. So the object of the Lord, he, he identifies where his sin is. It's against God. Now, he sinned against Uriah, he sinned against Bathsheba, but ultimately his sin is against the Lord. And um, Psalm 32 is a good psalm uh, that talks about uh, confessing our sin to God. Psalm 51 is a psalm, and I think we may, may look at this next week. We may take a break out of Second uh, Samuel and look at Psalm 51. But Psalm 51 is a psalm that comes directly from this incident that David writes, um, just talking about uh, repenting to God and asking God for uh, forgiveness for his sins. And, and there's some profound things in there, and we, I think we're going to look at this next week. But uh, looking at David's confession to God, that his sin is against God, and so he acknowledges that. And then we see he acknowledges his sin. He, he, he repents to God, and we see God's mercy in this. And this is why I say, said earlier that I think you know, David's initial response should have been as, as soon as you know, his guilt came upon him and he realized what he had done, he should have gone to God and said, God, I've sinned against you because I think God's ready to give mercy. And you look at this. Uh, Nathan's response to David after this is, The Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. What was the death sentence for what he's done? Twice over, he should have been dead according to the law. He sinned sinned by committing adultery with his neighbor's wife, and he sinned by killing someone, so twice he should have died. But God's response was uh, to say, The Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die. So God was ready to show him mercy. And I think God would have been ready to show him mercy right away if he would have confessed his sin right away instead of continuing to sin. So that's why I say he should have stopped and said, God, I've sinned. Help me to deal with the sin at, at, at the initial point instead of continuing on in sin and sin. So that's, that's why I say that he should have dealt with it right away. Because God's ready to offer that mercy. And we see God's mercy here, even after all of this, even after continuing on in sin and building on that sin, God's still ready to show David mercy when he's ready to repent. And so we see God's mercy here. David's not going to die, but that still doesn't erase the consequences of his sin. Because we see God's further judgment in this is that 
Um, and God gives a reason. that There's still a reason for the consequences because your sin, David, gives my enemies reason to blaspheme my name. And literally, um, in the Hebrew, I, I tried to translate this literally, which is always kind of a foolish thing to do maybe sometimes, but literally this is extremely, for spurning they will spurn the enemies of the Lord in word. It's literally how it comes out in translating. But the idea is, is that there's a, this extreme case that they're going to try to spurn the name of the Lord and in, in the way they speak because of what David has done. Um, and so because of this, God says the child's going to die because of what you've done. And that's the consequence of, what, of, of your sin. And so Nathan departs and the child becomes ill. And so this is further on, obviously, in the story. Once the child's born, the child becomes ill. Uh, let's see what happens now. Second uh, Samuel 12, verses 16 through 18. Josiah, go ahead. David therefore pleaded with God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. For the elders of his house arose and took him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. And on the seventh day, it came to pass that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Indeed, while the child was alive, he spoke to him, and he would not hear our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may lose his arm. So David's child dies. Now, this is interesting. The child's ill at this point, so David pleads with the Lord. So he fasts, and he prostrates himself on the ground, um, and he's going to plead with the Lord. And um, we're going to find out why in just a second. The elders of his house, they try to comfort him. They, they tell him to get up. They try to get him to eat something, but he would not get up, and he would not eat. He's committed to pleading for this child's life before God, and the child ends up dying anyway. And so the servants, now they're really afraid because while the child's alive, they can't comfort David. They can't get him to get up. They can't get him to eat. So now that the child's dead, um, you know, they didn't hear their voice before, so what's he going to do now? You know, maybe, maybe they're remembering Saul. You know, Saul was kind of crazy in the best of times. Now that things have gone really bad, you know, if this were Saul, Saul, Saul would really be throwing spears around the house. So what's David going to do? Um, you know, they, these guys don't know. You know, and, and David again, he's come out of this incident where he sent a guy into battle to kill him. You know, so what's he going to do? So let's find out what happens. Uh, verse twelve, uh, verses nineteen through twenty-three. Nathan, go ahead. When David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, 
Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. So David ends his mourning. You got to make sure the U's in there, otherwise it's morning. Like, and get up in the morning, and your spell check won't fix that because they won't put the red lines under there. Um, I depend on spell check a lot, and when never mind. Anyway, so um, David perceives the child's death. David is very perceptive. He sees his servants whispering, and he goes, "Hmm, I wonder why they're whispering." Uh, so he asks, and they answer, "Is, is the child dead?" "Yes, the child's dead." So David does the inexplicable. He cleans himself up. He washes and anoints himself, puts on new clothes, and notice the order of things before he goes to eat. This shows why David's a more godly person than I am, because I'd go and get myself a sandwich first, probably. I don't know. Maybe I wouldn't. But he goes and worships God. His priorities are, are right. Um, again, I think this is, this is a testimony to David, too, that um, you know, a lot of people... And not everybody, but some people lose loved ones or something, and what they do, they start throwing blame around. Maybe they blame God. Maybe they blame other people, whatever. David loses his child, and he goes and worships. And he understands who God is still. And maybe, you know, I think that David, when he repents here, obviously he's, he's sincere in his repentance, and God knows that, and God offers his mercy, so God obviously knows David's sincere in his repentance. But David has an understanding of who God is. Even after sinning, he did what was wrong. David doesn't lose his understanding of who God is. And after the child dies, he understands that God's just in what he's doing, and it doesn't change who God is. And so... Even after this, he goes and he worships God because he knows who God is. And that doesn't change about God. And so he knows that God is still worthy of his worship. And David does and goes the right, does the right thing and goes and worships God. Then after he's done worshiping, then he goes and gets something to eat. I mean, he hasn't eaten for seven days, so he's probably hungry at this point. Uh, he goes home and eats. Now, the servants are just baffled at this point because this is not what they expect. And so they question him, and they, you can see in their, their voice, they're, they're just they're dumbfounded by this. They, they think that his, his priorities are way out of whack at this point. Why are you not mourning now your child's dead? You've, you've lost it, David. Um, you, you were mourning when a child was alive, and now that he's dead, you're eating? You're worshiping? What are you doing? You're you're got things totally mixed up, and David tells him, "No, well the child was alive. I could pray to God, and maybe God would change his mind. Maybe God would change his judgment. But now that the child's dead, what good is fasting going to do? God's God's judged. God's done what He's done. I can't bring the child back. The only thing I can do is eventually I'm going to go to Him. You know, the child's dead. Eventually, I'm going to die too. I'll go to Him." But the child's not going to return to me. All I can do is worship God and continue on and move forward. And so David understands that a lot better than his servants did. So, so David moves on. Verses 24 and 25. Lemuel. Then David 
named Saul. Now the Lord loved him, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet, so he called his name because of the Lord. Okay, so Solomon is born. Again, I've said this a number of times in the class already. Um, you look at the um, genealogy of Christ in Matthew, and the genealogy of Christ in Matthew is the genealogy of Joseph, actually, his legal genealogy. Obviously, Jesus wasn't born of Joseph. He wasn't really his father. Um, but it goes through Solomon. And if I were God, this is not the path I would have chosen because I would have said, well, it should be through David's firstborn, which is not through Bathsheba, because Bathsheba wasn't David's first wife, and so I, this would not be the way I chose it, but this is how God chose to do it. And even out of this incident, in God's sovereignty, this is, Solomon is who God chose. So, um, we're not God, and this is the way God did it, and Solomon's born of this incident here. So David comforts Bathsheba, and uh, you know, we, we may look at this very lightly. Okay, Bathsheba's hurting. Her, her son died. David went and comforted her. Great. Think about this. At this time, the value of children to people. Um, we think back to the beginning of 1 Samuel. What, what was, uh, um, oh, and the names for, um, Hannah, thank you. I can't remember Hannah. That's very, should I remember that? Hannah, what was, what was her grief in life? She was not able to bear children. That, that was a cause of um, stress in her life. That was a cause of um, despair in her life. That was a cause of, um, I can't think of the word, but the, just, just people looking down on her in her life. Was, she did not have children. This was a big deal. And for, so for Bathsheba to lose a son, that was, that was probably a huge thing in her life. And so part of the comfort from David was that she bore a son to David here. I mean, this is this in here. The comfort was not just that David went and said, "Oh, it's okay." You know, I know we lost a son. I'm here to comfort. You. The, the part of the comfort is actually probably that she was able to bear a son to David after this. And the writer is probably saying this that David comforts Bathsheba because she bore him another son. Um, so, so he goes into her and she conceives. This is probably all part of what he's trying to convey in what he writes here. Um, so she bears a son. His name is Solomon. Uh, Solomon could have two meanings here. One is God is peace, um, which is true. Or the other one could be his replacement, which also could be true in this passage. Um, and so concerning Solomon, the writer of Samuel says, the Lord loved him. Again, if we understand love biblically, love uh, seems to be a choosing, that when you love something, you choose them. Um, and that's true. God chose Solomon to be uh, David's heir, to be the one who God used to continue the kingdom through. Um, God loved him, and that's interesting here again, too. Um, Nathan, therefore, named him Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord. So Nathan seemed to understand that. And it says, because of the Lord. So Solomon is one who is blessed of the Lord. Again, coming from this whole incident where 
you would think this incident obviously displeased the Lord, and yet coming out of this, you have Solomon, one who is loved of the Lord, and was chosen by the Lord, and is blessed of the Lord. It's just, you see God's grace in this whole incident, that God still chooses to use this child of this relationship, which started out so bad, yet God chose to bless it. It's it's only in God's mercy and grace that this happens. So, it's 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 just amazing to me. I I've, I don't have a hard time commenting on it because it's just it's so wild to me that that this is how God chose to bless David is through this relationship here. Um, anyway, so I'm going to move on because I don't know what else to say. Uh, verses 26 through 31. One more reader, Gabriel. Go ahead. So David captures Rabbah. My pen is not doing so well today. And Joab is fighting at Rabbah. Where is Rabbah again? Yeah, but what, what, why, why, why is what is what is significant about? It, I guess is what I'm asking. Just remember a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, and this is a city we're fighting against where Uriah died. So. So we're going back, and this may have been, this may go back in the story from where we're at in verse 25. So this may be um, after David was confronted, but maybe before the baby was born. This may not be exactly in chronological order here, because I put Joab is still there. If this was a couple years later, it might not be. Um, so this is where David's uh, decided to go with a poor strategy to get his. Um, to get Uriah dead. Um, so they're at the city, the capital city of Ammon. And Joab has somewhat of a victory there. He takes the water supply from the city. That's a good thing if you're uh, besieging a city because if they don't have any water, they're not going to last very long. Right? So, so the end's near. And Joab sends for David. So he sends his progress report. He fought. He took the water supply. And he tells David to come and says, David, gather the rest of the troops and camp against the city and take it. 
And the reason is because Joab doesn't want to take the city because he doesn't want the city to be known by his name. He wants to be known by David's name. Now, this may be referenced back to chapter 11, verse 1, when the, you know, the kings were supposed to be out going to battle. Um, and Joab understands that this is supposed to be David's campaign. And so he's saying, David, get down here because this is supposed to be your victory. You're supposed to get the glory for this, so get yourself down here with your troops so you can win this battle. And at least Joab is being kind of a loyal commander at this point and telling David, you're supposed to be here. So come here and finish this off so you can take the city and you can get the glory for it. Um, so David comes down there. He takes Rabbah. Um, he takes the king's crown, which is a talent of gold. The talent uh, was about 75 pounds. So this is not a small crown. This is not those little delicate crowns that we see in the plays that are made out of the cardboard and have the gold foil over. This is a pretty heavy crown. Uh, they place it on David's head. So David, David's not a weak guy if he's wearing a 75-pound crown on his head. Um, I used to have cheese heads. I'm a Packers fan. Um, th- these, are, these are styrofoam cheese heads. And you think, oh, that's not that bad. But you wear those for a while, and they actually start hurting your neck. I, I, really, I'm, I was, like, surprised. I'm like, these things are just uncomfortable to wear. I don't know how people wear them for Packer games. I never enjoyed wearing them. They look cool, but they're not fun to wear. They do look cool. Anybody that argues with me is wrong. Um, so, well, we'll, we'll, have, we'll, have to, we'll have to get you... Uh, corrected on that because they do look really cool. Um, anyway, so wearing a 75-pound crown on your head, I'm sure, is not the most comfortable thing in the world, but they, they put that on David's head, and so David's, I think, is a very strong individual if he's wearing this thing around, uh, even for a little while. It's a big crown. Um, he also took the spoils. Um, he took the slaves, and interesting here, the, the wording of this um, they put them to work with saws and iron picks and iron axes. Um, this can either be that they, they use these things or that they use these saws, iron picks, and iron axes on them. Um, they may have tortured them with these things, which is, there, there's some commentaries that, that say this, so they may have, um, this may have been a really, really violent thing they did to these people. So just so you're aware of that, I don't know if that makes any difference to this, but uh, the people of Ammon may have been tortured with these things. Um, and they did this to all the cities of Ammon. So um, this may have been a very brutal, bloody thing that they did here. Um, but David and the people returned to Jerusalem after this. So it just kind of sums up Rabbah. And I think this is kind of going back to 11.1, what happened with the city? Well, this is what happened with the city, that David eventually takes the city. So it kind of closes up the story here, um, because if you're reading, you want to know what happened with the city that they were attacking. So, so that's the story. So takeaways here. We've got four takeaways this morning. First of all, Nathan was sent by God to confront David concerning his sin. Um, I think there's a parallel for us, because we are commanded to admonish one another. We see that in Romans 15, 14, among many other places. And that when we have an offense against another believer, we need to go to that person and deal with that offense. Matthew 5, 23, 24, this is the one that talks about if we go to the altar with our gift and we have a, uh, something against our brother, we need to leave our gift there and go uh, make it right with that brother. Uh, when sin occurs, we are commanded to deal with that sin. Matthew 18, a very familiar passage to us. 
that if there's sin, that we go to that person. If they, they don't repent, then we take two or three others. If not, then uh, they don't repent, then we go uh, to the church. If they still don't repent, then uh, we treat them as an unbeliever at that point. And then an example, 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul commands uh, people to deal with uh, the brother that's in sin there. Um, and then, then this is, this is an, it should be an effort. This isn't an effort to restore the sinning part, uh, person, sinning part, to restore the sinning part to repentance and grace. The idea here is, um, just as Nathan came to David, and the idea was to get David to repent and to make things right with God, that when we come to a brother who's in sin, when we deal with sin in, in, in another believer, the idea, or even in unbelievers, you know, when we, we, we want to bring them to Christ, the idea is to restore them to God. The idea is to, re, to, to make things right between them and God. We want to restore them in grace. You know, that's, it's not to, to, to beat down on them. It's not to point out how awful they're doing and how great we're doing. It's not to make them feel bad. The idea is that we want them to get right with God so that they're walking with God again. You know, it's it's a humility thing too, because we know that, that we deal with our own sin in our own lives, and that if it wasn't for the grace of God, we'd be in the same situation. So we we want them. You know, the, the idea is, hey, you need to get things right with God and be walking with God. That's what we want you to do, because that's that's the best way. That's the right way. That's the good way. That's what God wants for you. And that's what Nathan. I think that's what Nathan was doing here. He wasn't there to tell David a story so he could say, "You're the man." His point was to get David to get to, I've sinned against God. Okay, good. Let's get on the path of making things right, David. Let's get to the point, you know, you sinned against God. Okay, there's going to be consequences, but you're going to get on the right path here now. You're get things back with God so that you're going to go and worship when your child dies, so that, you know, you're going to trust God when your son takes over the kingship and you have to flee. So that you're going to write that Psalm 51 that people are going to be looking at 4,000 years later. 3,000 years later, I guess it would be. 3,000 years later and uh, still, still reading in the Word of God. You know, that's, that's where we want you, David. It's not to make you feel bad. It's not to put you down. It's not for this. It's, it's to get you on the right path with God. So that's, that's, that's what Nathan was sent to do, to confront David concerning his sin. Uh, secondly, David confesses his sin to God. And notice his confession. I, confession, I have sinned against the Lord. Confession is agreeing with God about our sin and the seriousness of our sin. 1 John 1, nine tells us that if we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and, and, not enough, and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. And so that's what God wants us to do, confess our sins. It's not... It's not a pleading. It's not you know uh, making a list of God. If if you forgive me, I'm going to do this, 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 and this. It's just coming to God and saying, God, I've sinned. I know your sin is wrong. I agree with you about my sin. I'm confessing it to you. And then God's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from that unrighteousness. That's what God wants us to do. He wants us to acknowledge our sin before Him. David confessed his sin to God, and He wants us to do that too. So that's second point there. Third one. Though death was the penalty for David's sin, God offered mercy to David. God is ready to be merciful to us as we confess our sin to him. It's not God's desire to condemn anyone, but that all should come to repentance. 
And God's goal for us is to turn from our sin and to walk in righteousness in our lives. Our, his, his, his goal for us is for us to be sanctified, that we would turn from our sin. After we repent, that we turn from it and walk in the right way. I, brought, I put a verse in here because I thought about sanctification a lot. And, you know, I've talked a lot in the past and maybe recently about what's God's will for us. And, again, I can't tell you specific will for your life. You know, where, where does God want you to go to college? I don't know. What, who does God want you to marry? I couldn't tell you that. What car, kind of car does God want you to drive? He wants you to drive a, a, a Chevy. No, he wants you to drive a Hyundai, right? No. Um, he, likes, he likes Fords. He wants you to drive a Toyota? Toyota? What do you want you to drive? I don't know what he wants to drive, love you. Anyway, but uh, I can tell you a couple things about what the will of God is for you. Look at First Thessalonians 4, 1 through 7. Finally, brethren, we urge you and exhort you, Lord, that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God. For you know what commandments that we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. What's the will of God? Your sanctification. I know that's the will of God for you. Why? Because it just says that right there. That you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess your own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion or lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testify. For God did not cost uncleanness, but in holiness. So I can't tell you a lot of things about the will of God, but I can tell you some things, and your sanctification is one of them. So what we need to do, well, we need to repent, we need to turn away from our sin, and we need to start walking in God's ways. We need to be sanctified in our lives. So that's the third point there. And then the last one. While David's sin was forgiven, the consequence of his sin still remained. These consequences often included dealing with people we have hurt, difficult circumstances we have, we have ourselves in, financial difficulties our sin have caused, or broken relationships and trust we have caused. Broken relationships and broken trust we have caused. Being forgiven does not wipe out the many negative consequences of our sins. So, just because you're forgiven doesn't mean that you might not be that your your consequences are all going to be washed away from that. And that's something we need to consider with sin: is that you may be dealing with consequences for years and years and years because you failed to obey God. David, I think, was forgiven of his sin. I'm, I'm. 100% 100% positive God forgave his sin. David was shown mercy for his sin. He should have died for his sin. God showed him mercy. God says, therefore, you're not going to die because of this, but your child's going to die, but it's going to be the sword is not going to depart from your house, but you're going to have an enemy arise from inside your house, but someone's going to sleep with your wives in the sight of everybody. There's going to be consequences for your sin. But I think David was fully forgiven. And I think David experienced God's mercy and grace to a large extent that he did not deserve. Forgiveness does not equal banishment of consequences. And that's, that's true of Christians, too, that we, if, if we spend our money foolishly when we have hundreds of thousands of credit card debt, that doesn't mean that it goes away when we say, God, I was foolish in spending my money, forgive me. Okay, God will forgive you, but you still have your $100,000 of credit card debt. And that still has to be taken care of somehow. If you decide to have sex outside of marriage and your girlfriend gets pregnant and you say, God, forgive me, that doesn't mean you have to 
not deal with the consequences of whatever that may be with that pregnancy or maybe a sexually transmitted disease because of that or whatever else, that is still a consequence, even though you may be fully forgiven by God. There's still the consequences of that sin. And so, yes, God's willing to forgive. Yes, God's willing to give you grace and mercy. And God may help you in those situations. You don't have to do that alone. And there, there's help and there's support from your, your, your church and there's support from your Christian friends. And I'm not saying that, that God's going to make you go through that alone or whatever, but the consequences still remain on that. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to scare you and say that, that you're going to go through it alone and, and life is going to be awful, that God's still going to show grace and mercy even through that, but it doesn't wipe out the consequences. So, any thoughts or questions? I know it's 12.05, you guys are getting hungry, you guys are tired of listening to me talk. Can I share one thought? Yes. Yeah, that is neat. I think uh, you know that that's that's a really good point. Um, and I think it, you know even uh, when God gave, um, you know, Nathan says that at the one point it just struck me too. If it, if it if I hadn't given you enough, you just could have asked, and I would have given you more. It's like, and, you know, and of all the people who probably didn't really need more, it probably was David. I. I mean, you look at everything that he had. I, I don't know what more he could have asked for, but God's, God even said, and God doesn't lie, so you know that he would have given him more if David would have asked. I mean, it's like, wow. Um, you know, he could, have, he could have had anything he needed and uh, anything he wanted, basically. And like you say, he, he took what, what God did not give him. And yeah, that's a very good point. Thank you. Lynn. Yeah, there's a, there's a comfort in that. I know a lot of uh, pastors have used that passage as a comfort to people who have lost young children. Um, and I, I, I take comfort in that, too. Um, it's, I don't know if it's a definitive passage, but it seems to hold some weight there to me. So um, Gabriel and I have talked about it, and there, Gabriel has some theories, too, so he'll share some with you if you want to talk to him a little more about it. I'd like to give him more time because he'll, he'll talk for another hour of that and you guys want to go meet. <laughs> I don't know, how long did we talk that one night? It was about a half hour on it at least. But they're interesting. It's, 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 he's thought a lot about it.
So I couldn't, I don't remember everything about it, but there are some interesting thoughts. Any, anybody else want to share anything? I don't want to cut anybody off, but Ed's already getting up. He's done with us. <laughs> <laughs> so I will really close us in prayer.